I sort of feel like um, Jude in the scriptures where he said, you know, I, I really wanted to write you about this, but I felt like the Lord was urging me to write about this instead. Uh, all week long I've been thinking about a particular message for this morning, and you know, when you have that sort of sense of, you know, here's kind of what I want to do, and then there's the Lord pushing in another direction, you tend to push back against that. Uh, Lord, I don't really want to talk about that. I'd really rather talk about this. So we'll talk about this next week, and, and this morning we're going to talk about what it seems like the Lord wants us to hear. And uh, we'll start with a joke. The perfect man and the perfect woman were driving in a car very fast toward an intersection. Coming the opposite direction in a car was Santa Claus. The perfect man, the perfect woman, one direction. Santa Claus, another direction. They got to the intersection, had a terrible collision. Who survived the crash? The perfect man, the perfect woman, or Santa Claus? Answer, I know, we've, I know, we've got, we've got. The answer is the perfect woman, because the other two don't exist. <laughs> of course, of course, it was a woman who told me that joke. It was my mother, actually. I thought, Mom, I'm a man. There is no perfect man. There's no perfect woman. There's no perfect person, of course, except the one perfect man, Jesus. And the Bible never gives us the expectation to live a life that's perfect. Of course, that's our standard. You know, Matthew 5, Jesus said it himself, that we're to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. But our standard, of course, our goal is... Um, and sometimes it's even translated perfect in the New Testament, but the idea is mature. To be a mature person, a person who is striving to grow not to perfection, but to maturity, to all we can possibly be in this life. You remember Paul's words, and I, I love that in this context where he said that I haven't yet arrived or become perfect. But one thing I do, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So in order to grow to maturity, what does it take? Um, it really is just kind of meat and potatoes Christianity. It's really pretty simple as far as the answer to that. The challenge, of course, is doing it day by day. And this is what I want to talk to you about. Um, turn with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 2. Book of Proverbs, chapter 2. When you hear the word disciple, what comes to your mind? If somebody were to say, picture a disciple, what would you picture? Probably most of us would think about the apostles. And of course they were disciples. The Gospels frequently refer to them as Jesus' disciples, but that's not all the uh, Gospels refer to as Christ's disciples. There are actually several categories you might want to refer to them as. Uh, the first we could call the curious, those who were simply following Christ and interesting, interested in what he had to teach. The word disciple is from the Greek term mathetes, 
mathetes. We get our word mathematics from it. It simply means a, a learner or a student. A disciple, in a very broad term, is a learner or a student. And there were some who simply followed Christ out of curiosity. They wanted to learn. It was just a matter of being curious. We see this in, in, um, in when Jesus taught in the Capernaum synagogue. In John 6, he said some things that were really hard. And John says that some of his disciples no longer walked with him. And then it says he turned to the 12 and asked them a question. So John makes a distinction between simply the 12 and the general disciples. So there were many who followed Christ, called his disciples, who when Jesus kind of drew a line in the sand, they said, you know what, that's too much. We're out of here. They were just curious. The next type of disciple you might call the, um, the convinced. Th these are those who truly believe. They're beyond curious. They have crossed over into believing in Jesus Christ. Joseph of Arimathea was called a disciple of Christ, but he was called a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So he was a disciple, but it was private. It was private. The final and the ultimate, you might say, disciple, we could call the committed. They're beyond curious, they're beyond simply convinced, but they're committed to Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus holds up when he says that anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. These are, these are those that we want to be. We're beyond curious. We are beyond even committed. We are uh, beyond convinced. We want to be committed to Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 2 gives us a great groundwork for what we can do to grow in our Christian life, to have a good, solid foundation as a disciple of Christ. Proverbs 2, let's start right in verse 1. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, Lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. And he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. These first ten verses and even some of the verses that follow basically give, give you, give me, what it takes as a basic groundwork of growing in your walk with God, and in your walk with Jesus Christ. How are you receptive to God? How are you receptive to God's Word? Notice there is sort of an if-then in this passage. He says, my son, if you, and the Hebrew there is singular. It's not, you know, if y'all, if, if all of y'all will do this, but if you, if you an individual. So imagine just for a moment that everyone else is out of this room, and just you and I are talking, or better still, you and the Word of God are talking. If you, as an individual, will receive my words, 
this is wisdom speaking, and treasure my commandments. Your ear attentive, your heart to understand. If you cry, if, if you lift your voice, if you seek her as silver, it's, it's very personal and it's meant to be personal. This is not a broad general application, but a very specific call to you as an individual to pay attention to God's word. And there's an if then. If you will make this kind of commitment, and I love the, the metaphor here in verse 4, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure. If we knew that there was a million dollars buried under the stage, I probably wouldn't get to finish this talk. <laughs> we would tear this thing up to find it. If you knew that there was a million dollars buried somewhere in your backyard, you would find it. I mean, if you knew it was there, absolutely knew it was there, you would find it wherever it was. However big or small your backyard is, you would commit to finding that, wouldn't you? Of course you would. We're told that there is something far greater than gold in the pages of this book. And we're promised that if, if you will receive treasure, be attentive, give your heart, cry, lift your voice, seek, search, verse 5, then, if you'll do this, then you will discern the fear of the Lord, discover the knowledge of God. Verse 9, then you will discern righteousness, justice, equity, and every good cause. The first way that you can grow deeper, more intimate with God, with Christ, as a disciple, is through your personal time with God in the Word. So your personal time with God in the Word. It's not simply your personal time in the Word, but your personal time with God in the Word. This book, it's a wonderful book. I can't think, it's probably not a person in this room that would say that there's a book that they have that's more, fav more of a favorite book than this. And as wonderful as the Word of God is, this is not our goal. This is the means to the goal. The goal is God, to grow in your walk with Him. And this book is the primary means by which that happens. You say, well, Wayne, you know, that's pretty basic. I kind of know that. In fact, I already do that. And that's great. That's fantastic. Karl Barth was once asked if, if by a student if he could summarize what's the most important thing that he's learned in theology. And Barth said, yeah, you know, I think I can. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's the simple things that are the most profound. And, you know, when we blow it in the Christian life, it's usually not because of some you know, far-off doctrine. How many dispensations do you see in the Scripture? Well, I mean, that, that's important, but that's not what's going to crater your life. What causes the, the bottom to fall out from under your life is rarely something extreme. It's usually something very basic. And so when I said, you know, I really wanted to talk about something else, and I really felt pressed, urged by the Lord to talk about something very simple, Maybe it was for you that we're gathered here today and looking at Proverbs 2 with the application that you commit to personal time with God through His Word. Maybe you already have a personal time in the Word. Fantastic. Now tomorrow morning, make it a personal time with God in the Word. 
Because the Bible's goal is not simply for you to consume content, but rather that through the content, you would have a growing relationship with God. So picture him sitting right there beside you as you, um, as you spend time in the Word. The benefits of Bible reading, unfortunately, don't come right away. Now, you may get some grand flash of insight, uh, but rarely are there shafts of light that uh, interrupt you as you're reading. Mostly, it's just common sense as you're reading, uh, simple understanding of the text, but, and, and you don't have like someone there to cheer you on, too. It's hard having this daily discipline, isn't it? You wake up each day and you open the book and maybe a cup of coffee or tea or something. There's not anybody there you know, cheering you on saying, man, way to go, Bob. You're there opening the Word. You're there reading the Word. You're there with the Lord. It's just you and God. Um, the benefits of Bible reading don't feel immediate, but they're there. We're told that if we do these things, then it will happen. It's a process. It's not immediate. The benefits of Bible study are listed here in Proverbs 2. We've read some of them, and there are many more. Research, in fact, shows that someone who reads the Bible four times or more each week, so four times or more each week, statistically, is 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness. 59% less likely to view pornography. 228% more likely to share their faith. 228% more likely to share their faith. 407% more likely to memorize Scripture. In other words, a person who reads the Bible is going to have a life that looks a lot different from a person who doesn't, even as a Christian. If you've got Christian A who doesn't read the Word, you've got Christian B who does, Christian B's life is going to look a whole lot different. Than the, than the one who doesn't. This is probably why Peter wrote and challenged us. He said, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it, by the word, you may grow in respect to salvation. In any relationship, there's listening and talking. Your relationship with your spouse, with your siblings, with your kids, with your grandkids, with one another, even now, As we're interacting, there's listening and talking. That's the way we communicate. It's the same with you and the Lord. Your relationship with God includes listening and talking. We listen through the Word, and we talk to Him through prayer. Um, And that requires commitment. That requires a plan. I don't know if you have a plan to study the Bible, to read the Word each day. Uh, Maybe it's an annual reading plan like the one-year Bible or it's uh, another plan that you've come up with, maybe, you know, four four chapters a day, one chapter a day, however you you do it. But it's good to have, to read on a couple levels. One, that you're gleaning a large amount of Bible just so that you can be familiar with the content, but also that you're doing something beyond simply the, the, the general and the surface, but you're actually going deep that you might just focus on, you know, a proverb. Uh, You know, there's that challenge to read a chapter of Proverbs, you know, a day. Um, You know, 31 days in a month, you get 31 chapters of Proverbs, read a chapter of Proverbs a day. And, you know, I've done that, and I've found that that's good, 
But there's still a lot in a particular chapter. And my temptation is, especially with some Proverbs that you kind of go, I'm not sure what that means. You'll just read on to the next one. And you'll miss something. So instead, what I like to do in Proverbs is, instead of reading a, a chapter a day, I'll read a proverb a day, or just one proverb. Or if there's like a, a verse or two that clearly go together, just that. And force myself to sit and really figure out what it's saying. And then think, all right, now how can I take that into my life today? Proverbs 2. Now, let's turn and look at another passage. I've got actually several I want to show you this morning as we talk about growing as a disciple. James. Book of James. Chapter 1. George Barna has done some extensive research that shows that Christians often substitute knowledge for application. Church discipleship programs, Bible study programs, and even seminary programs, um, a lot of times will substitute knowledge for application. The goal, the goal, is knowledge. It's information, not transformation. And Barna noted something that I thought was well said. He said that Jesus said, follow me, not repeat after me. <laughs> follow me, not repeat after me. James chapter 1, let's read what James has to say here starting in verse 21, uh, 22. He writes, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. The NIV says he has immediately forgotten what he looks like. The primary goal of the Word of God we just read, and that's change, life change. So when you sit down every morning or afternoon or evening or whenever you spend time with the Lord, I'll probably refer to it as morning because that's what I do, your, your goal is not information, it's transformation. You sit down and open the Word and say, Lord, show me something today I can apply. Don't just give me an insight that's new. Don't just help me learn something that maybe I didn't get before. But rather, God, what can I apply from the text today? Be a doer of the Word. The primary goal is not understanding, but it is transformation. We've got several sad substitutes for application, and the first is simply understanding. We think that if we understand the text, we're done. You know, if we, we have a good grasp on it, we're done. Um, and in our evangelical, Bible-focused circles, that's huge. We have to start there with understanding, but we can't stop there. That's a substitute for, for the goal of the Word of God. It's not information. It's transformation. The next might, we might call rationalization. This is where, well, obviously, this needs to be applied. And the perfect person to apply this is my wife. <laughs> In fact, we'll even pray, you know, when we, when we read this and think, oh, wow, boy, that's convicting. Lord, please help my wife understand this truth. <laughs> Isn't it true? 
Or sometimes, like in sermons, something convicting comes out of the Word, and ladies, all of a sudden it makes your elbow twitch, and you just... (laughs) Especially in the direction of, of, of a husband or friend. There's something about uh, getting around the application of the word by deflecting or rationalizing how it doesn't apply to you, but it applies to somebody else. And the third is emotional. And this is pretty subtle, a subtle deception that we think if we've been touched emotionally by the Bible, that somehow we've applied it. You know, you'll, you'll really feel perhaps the Spirit of God land on you in the middle of reading the Bible or in the middle of hearing a sermon, and you'll have an emotional experience with it. And you'll think, thank you, Father, for, you know, for touching me with that. But that's not the end of it. It's sort of like a, a puff of smoke that appears and then just kind of goes away. Or it's like a dream that you have, that you have, and it's very vivid at the moment, but then you just, it just kind of goes away. And you can't remember you know, what you read that morning at lunchtime because it was just an emotional experience for the moment. So don't substitute simply understanding or rationalization or an emotional experience when you are involved with God's Word. James says it's not enough. You want to be a doer of the Word. And he gives us a great example. James uses here an example of a a man that looks at himself in a mirror. And the word that he uses here for man is not the general term for people or mankind or male or female, but it's male, a man, a male. Think about what happens when a man stands in front of a mirror. Um, it's really pretty quick, isn't it? We walk up, you know, just kind of look, um, squeaky, squeaky, just kind of get it all right. And in about 30 seconds, 45 seconds, we're, we're good for the day. But a woman, on the other hand, <laughs> She comes to a mirror for business. She comes to change. She comes to see what's not in order and to put it in order. She uses the mirror for its purpose. Uh, and you can, you can often tell, um, I want to be very careful here, I'm not going to talk about my wife, but I'm going to talk about somebody else's wife. I went to my friend's house one morning, it was kind of early one morning, and I won't tell you who it is because you know who it is. And I knock on the door, and the door opens, and this face comes out. <laughs> Hi, Wayne. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> it wasn't until she said my name that I, I realized, this is his wife. <laughs> there was a big change between the face I saw and the face I was used to seeing. <laughs> That's all I'll say. That's all I'll say. My point is that a woman goes there for business. My aunt tells me, she says, Wayne, the older I get, the longer it takes me to fool Mother Nature every morning. (laughs) Yep. Most women even carry little mirrors with them, you know, called a compact. Can you imagine a man pulling out a compact? What for? (laughs) Men don't come to mirrors to change. Women do. And that's, I think that's James's point. That a man who simply looks at his face in a mirror and goes away, it's pointless. 
In fact, James says in verse 22, it's like someone, uh, someone who doesn't do anything with the word and merely hears deludes themselves. It's a deception. In fact, we read, um, we read in verse 26, just scoot down there for a second. It says that one who does not bridle his tongue deceives his own heart. So there is a delusion, a self-delusion. You're kidding yourself, in other words. When you come to the Word and you think that simply by looking at it or by having an emotional experience with it, but not allowing it to change you, you're kidding yourself if you think you're religious. This is what James is teaching us. About 12 years ago, the Chicago Tribune had a fascinating article about a man named Thomas. He was drafted into the Russian army in World War II. The authorities misunderstood his Hungarian native language for the gibberish of a lunatic, and they put him in prison. And they had him committed. And then they promptly forgot about him for 53 years. There was a psychiatrist at the hospital that began to realize what had happened, and that he helped Thomas recover uh, who he was. He didn't for, he even forgot his own name. Recover his memories and where he came from. And he not only had forgotten his name, but this man hadn't seen his face in 50 years. Imagine that. So, for the first time, they gave him a mirror in 50 years. And the article said this, for hours, the old man studies the face in a mirror, the deep-set eyes, the gray stubble on the chin, the furrows of the brow. It is his face, but it is a startling revelation. Can you imagine forgetting what you look like? To us, that's unthinkable. And I think that's James's point. The whole purpose of a mirror is to show you truth so that you can change. The Bible is that mirror. The metaphor of the mirror is that the Bible reflects you. When you look into this book, you are seeing a reflection. It is going to reveal to you faults, strengths, areas of weakness, areas of, of, uh, of, of, of value, what God thinks of you, what you should think of you. This book reflects you as you really are without any, uh, any makeup, any, any hair combing, anything. It reflects the true you. And the challenge is not to reject that and go away and immediately forget what you look like, but the challenge is when it shows you something that needs to change, you change it. So here's the second application. If the first is to grow through your personal time with God and His Word, the second to grow as a disciple is the personal application of God's Word. So when you come to the Word, you come to God, not simply for the purpose of, of assimilating content, but you come for the purpose of life change. Of life change. Look at verse 25. This is the better alternative James gives us. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, 
This man's religion is worthless. The word that James uses here for looks intently is a word that means to bend over or to stoop down. It's the idea that you get in really close and you're looking. You're not just simply you know, skimming the text, but you're actually looking very closely for the purpose of life change. How do you do that? How do you do that every day? Well, something very simple that I've tried to do for years, and honestly, I don't do it every day, I'll be honest with you, but I try to do it every day, and I'm urging you to try to do it every day because it's very simple and it works. And that is before you close this book, before you close this book, make it a habit that you will say, God, what is one thing that I can take from what I've read today and apply? Maybe you think about a conversation that you have coming up. Maybe you have an appointment. Maybe you're doing some teaching. Maybe you have to have a hard conversation with a family member. Maybe you're going to church. Maybe you're going to get out on the highway with all the idiots of the world. How are you going to apply what you've read today? I think that if you begin to ask yourself, God, how can I apply this text? He will answer you. He will bring something to mind that maybe you've not forgot, uh, thought about. And you know, you don't, you don't simply ask that question as you close the text. Ask that question as you open the text. God, please show me something as I read today that I can apply. Because my goal is not simply to read you know, the book of James and to check off all the boxes at the end of the year and to show everybody, look, I got all my boxes checked. I've read the Word. The goal is for people to be able to see the Word in your life, to see the transformation in your life. It's not simply to assume, consume content, but to let the content consume you. Verse 27, James says this, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. True transformation shows itself in life change, Your tongue, he said earlier, verse 26, also you're serving those who need it. Your words, you're serving, and, and literally, you're guarding yourself. He said, keep oneself unstained by the world. Literally, it's guarding yourself from the world's influence. That's application too. You apply the word of God by guarding yourself against the world's influence into your heart. Several years ago, I went to China uh, to do some ministry there, and I've uh, got to see the Great Wall for the first time in my life. That thing is amazing. It is massive. It is so big. It's, I think, let me look. I want to make sure I get it right. 30 feet high, 18 feet thick, 1,500 miles long. It's the largest man-made object you know, that, that's ever been built. And why did, the, why did China build this big wall? They wanted to protect themselves against the invading barbaric troops to the north. So they built a wall that was too high to climb over, it was too thick to break down, and it was way too long to go around. But here's the irony. During the first hundred years of the wall's existence, China was successfully invaded three times. You know how? 
The barbarians never climbed the wall, broke it down, and went around it. They simply bribed the gatekeeper (laughs) and marched right in. The purpose of the wall failed because the values of the gatekeeper failed. You are the gatekeeper to your heart. You have, if you will maintain, if, like James says, you will keep yourself unstained by the world, or literally, if you will guard yourself. You are that gatekeeper. And you have the opportunity to keep out the invading masses of the influence of the world by your application of God's word. But when you compromise, when I compromise our values and allow some of those some of that influence in, then all of a sudden the whole benefit of the wall has failed because of our compromise. James says, guard yourself. One more passage. One more passage. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. We've talked a lot about you. And that's good because that's where we begin. But your relationship with Christ, even though it is very personal, it is not private. Let that sink in a second. Your walk with God is personal, but it is not private. It was never meant to be. It begins personally, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. 2 Timothy 2, look at verse 1. Paul writes, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, let's stop there for a second. Your relationship with Christ begins with an understanding of his grace, does it not? That you come to the place in your life where you realize, look, God's standard God's standard to have a relationship with Him is holiness. It's Him. It's perfection. And I fall so far short of that. But the good news is that even though we fall short of that high standard, Jesus Christ has died on the cross to pay for that. And if it's our sin that gets in the way of us and God, then it's our sin that has to be removed. And Jesus did that. He took it away when He died on the cross. And all you have to do is simply believe, simply have faith in Him. That what He did on the cross paid for your sins. Your sin is removed and there's nothing that obstructs your relationship with God. He sees you as holy as His Son Jesus. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Are you strong with what I just said? Do you believe that? Not only personally, but also does that give you strength in your daily walk? This is a command to make sure that you as an individual in your relationship with Christ remain strong in the same grace that saved you day by day. In fact, the command is emphatic. You. It's emphatic in the, in the original text. You, therefore, be strong. Nobody else can have a relationship with Christ but you. Your spouse, your friend, your kids, your pastor, No one can have that relationship for you except you. Be strong in that grace. I I got my driver's license when I was 15. I think they're giving them now at 15. Can you imagine? Have you ever seen a 15-year-old person driving a car? It's frightening. You You see them like on the side of the road and you think, you know, does your mom 
know that you're that you have the car. Well, I was 15 and I had my first car date, and my dad, uh, uh, he's you know he had a Cadillac back then, and he said, Wayne, I'm gonna let you drive the Cadillac. So he gives me the keys to the Cadillac, and he also gives me his American Express Platinum card. Says, have a good time. That's it. That's all he said. Have a good time. So here I am, 15, brand new license in my wallet, Cadillac, American Express, you know, card. And my father and I share the same name. So the card has my name on it. And I'm driving down the road, you know, going to pick up my date. And I look down and I see the speedometer. You know, it says potentially 120 miles an hour. I look at this and I think, you know, I wonder if it really means 120 miles an hour. I mean, it says that, but can it really do 120 miles an hour? So uh, I, I pick up my date and we go and I, I could have, I'm saying all this to say, I really could have uh, taken advantage of that. I mean, Cadillac, 120 miles an hour. I could have gotten out on the, the highway and let that thing rip. Uh, I had a credit card that probably could have bought the car. But instead, when I picked up my date, we, I parked like on the other end of the parking lot, you know, out away from all the other cars. They didn't want the car to get damaged or scratched. Why are we parking way out here? I, well, I don't want the car to get scratched. So we go in, we sit down, and I tell my date to keep her meal under five bucks. <laughs> so there's no reason we take advantage of my father's generosity. The grace that we are to be strong in, can you as a Christian willfully sin and still be saved? Sure you can. Sure you can. But you're taking advantage of God's grace. God's grace for us as a Christian motivates us to be strong, to be faithful. Grace is not just that which that saved us, but grace is that which keeps us faithful because of our gratitude in Christ. Look at verse 2. Again, it's not just you. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I, uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard. This is the 1995. And maybe, I know I've studied this in years past, um, and I remember verse 2 beginning with the word and. So I went back and looked in the Greek and and is there. I don't know why the NASB doesn't include it, but it would have been helpful, I think, because verse 1 and verse 2 are not completely separate ideas. Your walk with God, verse 1, is personal. Verse 2, and the things which you have heard from me. In the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men. But it's not private. What you have grown to understand personally is something that you need to share with other people. And here, of course, the immediate application for Timothy is a young pastor passing on the wisdom that Paul's given him to other faithful men who will be able to make disciples of others also. But the principle of this multiplication is not just, uh, you know, here in ministry in the context of, of the local church, but it's also in personal relationships. I said one more. Teachers never mean just one more when they say that. 
but this time I think I do. Turn to Titus chapter 2 and look at a far more personal application of this identical principle. Titus 2, starting verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage, or literally train, the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. You see, it's not just about men training men, it's about women also training women in the context of personal relationships. And uh, I appreciate, Judy, you saying that uh, you realize you're an older woman. You said that, and so that's why I'm saying that. (laughs) And I won't say that about any of you other ladies in here, but let's just say, maybe generally speaking, it's true for some of you. (laughs) The verse I just read is for you. Older women are to be reverent in their behavior. They're to have a life that is reproducible. How you are to be is verse 3. That's personal, but it's not private. Verse 4, so that you may encourage young women to do all these things that you have struggled to learn to do all your life. Your personal application, your personal time with God and the Word, your personal application of the Word, and finally, your personal commitment to share the Word with others. This is how you grow. This is how you go deep in your walk with Jesus Christ. Um, You say, well, I don't have time to do that. I mean, if you only knew how busy I really am. And, And I'm not a teacher. You know, this is saying that you've got to be able to teach others. I'm not a teacher. Someone else is going to have to do that. You know, the command to evangelize is also not just given to those with the gift of evangelism. It's not just evangelists that do evangelism. It's not just teachers that teach. But all of us are called to fulfill the Great Commission on both of those levels, that we have a personal interaction with those who don't know Jesus Christ, and we also have a personal commitment to training those who are younger than us in the faith. And so rather than say, here's how you do that, or here's how you know you should do that, let me just challenge you instead to say, Lord, I'm willing. Show me the next steps. If you say, Lord, I'm willing, show me the next steps. If there is someone, some young woman, uh, for you older ladies, that you can begin a relationship with, to simply sit down over coffee and you can talk about the simple things about, I say it's simple, but <laughs> what's written here? How to love your husband, how to love your children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind. How do you be kind in the home? How do you be subject to your husband in the home? How have you worked that out? What have you learned through the years of your life? Younger women desperately need to hear that. And men, it's the same idea. The things that you have learned as a godly man growing up, growing older, there are younger men that desperately need a model. You have not lived this long for nothing. Your walk with God is not not just personal, but uh, it's to be shared with others.
Just begin, Lord, I'm willing. Show me the next steps. Personal time with God in the Word, personal application of the Word. What's one thing you can get out of the text? And then a personal commitment to share that the Word and your life with others. Let's pray. Father, you know the reason that we looked at these texts today. Maybe it was for me. Maybe it was for someone hearing my voice just now, but you know that we are to grow personally in our walks with you. We can't simply assume the basics. We've got to maintain them. We've got to maintain our commitment to them every day, especially our personal time with you. As we open the word and ask, Lord, show me wonderful things from your law. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your law. And then what one thing can I apply today? And Lord, give us the sight also, the the vision to grow beyond our personal walk with you. And to have eyes for others, those younger than us, who desperately need the wisdom of our years. Show us, ask us, Lord, how can we be involved in a way that shares what you've given us into the lives of others. This is meat and potatoes, Christianity. This is what you called us to do. Please, Lord, don't let us rationalize around them. Let us wiggle out of this privilege, not just a responsibility, the privilege of growing up with you and reaching out to others. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.